You're listening to the Local Open Mic Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Heath. Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with Bill O'Hanlon. We continue where we left off with Bill. And now that you have a taste of the types of songs he writes and the quality there, you won't want to miss a moment of part two of this interview. We're going to pick up with a replay of Southern Nights, just for context. It was a great song and a good place to start up the interview again. Local Open Mic can be found on many social media sites like Facebook and Instagram. And for all the latest shows and information, bookmark localopenmic.com in your browser. Our podcast is available on Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and Google Play, and many more sites. So be sure to subscribe so that you won't miss any of our exclusive and personal interviews with musicians, songwriters, producers, and anyone we think is important for you to know about. And now part two of our interview with Bill O'Hanlon. Okay, so this is Southern Nights. I remember sneaking out Trying not to make a sound Heading down that gravel road To a swimming hole Magnolia shade all around You slipped off your moonlit gown Then you turned to me and said Let's dive right in Those southern nights We were younger those southern days we felt the heat the hunger that southern love it ain't like no other when the sun goes down you want it to last forever those southern nights be a southern bell but you were always raising hell nothing could hold you down so wild and free we were always seventeen on the edge of everything living every, every moment like you would never end those southern Southern days felt the heat, the hunger. 
somebody else like that somebody else like that well we'll put all your contact information in the description on the um, uh, on the podcast so people will if they read the descriptions of course they'll know it and we'll talk about that in just just a few moments here I have a note here um, that listening to this song kind of spurred on uh, song length you know I uh, I've made um, a little bit of a done a little bit of research on the length of songs over time and there is some hard statistics about uh, pop songs and country songs where they've been going and I focus mostly I think the statistics refer generally to songs in the category of pop song not not the subcategories uh, like country or you know whatever they are and songs since the 60s uh, were about Two and a half minutes or so, to, uh, closer to three, actually. You hit the 70s, yeah. and through the 70s, these songs just soar up to almost four minutes a song. And then yeah. it slowly climbed up to around 2015, being um, it probably peaked between 2010, 2015, it being over right about four and a half minutes. And, but since then, because the streaming world has finally started to yeah. throw its weight around, yeah. The, the songs have been plummeting in length. So now your typical hit song uh, is somewhere hovering three minutes. So this le- 246, uh, 346 in country, and they're, they're aiming for 230. Yeah. Yeah. In streaming. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so the question was when you're writing songs and lyrics and you're trying to piece together this, this story of a song. Uh, do you pay attention to how long it could be? Absolutely. All the time. Because we, we have our minds that if you're going to write commercially, you're going to pay attention to that. Now, there's always exceptions, but we think, you know, the song is already getting up 315, 320. You don't want to put a bridge in there if you don't need one. You know, why put a bridge in there? Or let's cut out some of the intro. Or let's not have any break let's not have a pre-chorus let's get right to the chorus don't bore us get to the chorus so we're thinking about that when we come in about 245 we're happy puppies now you can change that with production you can increase it you can decrease it you can have a shorter intro you can turn around from the chorus to the verse a lot more quickly but we're always thinking that when we do our work tapes at the end of our ride or part way through our ride we'll say ah we're right at 245 that's just perfect. Let's not mess with it. Unless we feel the song is missing something, you know, and I think a lot of times, you know, it used to be two verses, a chorus, two verses, a chorus, a bridge, a chorus, and out, and an outro. 
and that's rare these days. You have maybe two stanzas, maybe one stanza, a pre-chorus, which is one line or two lines, chorus, another stanza, not two stanzas after the first chorus, a chorus and out, or a chorus, a quick bridge, and the bridges are shorter. Sometimes they're, you know, the middle eight, as the Beatles called them, they're eight bars. Sometimes they're four bars. And then you're chorus and out. Sometimes there's a breakdown chorus where you don't have as many much instrumentation in the first part of the chorus or the whole chorus, and you repeat the chorus if it's very short. But we're thinking of timing all the time, and you're right. Streaming has a, had a big influence because they say the shorter the song that people get to the end of the song and they replay it, and that's more income for streamers. Exactly. And um, so uh, I think that um, the the thing that people starting out in songwriting really uh, miss is they have so much to say and they want to say it. And I remember back, uh, it's probably 20 years ago now, uh, I was producing a gal that wrote a song and it was a gospel song. And that's mostly where my experience has been in, in producing and writing gospel, contemporary gospel music, crossover type stuff. And so yeah. she brought this song in for me to produce. She had never been in the studio before. I liked the, the, nature, the raw nature of her songs. And so I started producing it. And I looked at it and I had to tell her, you know, a six-minute song isn't going to cut it. So I asked her, could I make some suggestions and wordsmith this a little bit and see if we can get it down to something that uh, I think we got it when it was all said and done right around four minutes. Um, and it was a better song because there were things that she was doing in the writing that were repetitive that she didn't actually yeah. need to do. Um, so once she realized that, you know, at first she was a little bit, uh, hurt by it because, wow, this is my song. This is my baby. This is, and, yeah. but when she realized the purpose is to get the, the message out, uh, there, that took priority in the end. And it turned out that that song did get her some traction on the air. Uh, it was a good demo and it, it made it to the radio for a bit for her. Uh, so, uh, that was a good thing. Well, it's like, you know, it's like movie editors. Sometimes you don't realize when you're so close to it, oh, we sort of already did that, or that part slows the whole movie down. We've got to cut some of that out. And if you're, you know, if you're so precious about your stuff, you know, the old saying from writing, I, somebody said it was Hemingway, but I think it's somebody else, you know, kill your darlings, is that sometimes you write things that's really good in a song, and well, oh, I hate to cut that out, but it's just, it's not working for the song or it's making the song too long. Let's just cut it out. And when I first wrote my songs, I was like that. I was like, no, this was dictated to me by God and the universe and you can't change it. It was perfect the way it is. And I'll tell you, since going to Nashville, like my books, I've learned to edit my songs and edit, edit on the fly and then edit afterwards as I play it, as I get a little distance from it. And as other people give me feedback on it, I mean, you got to, stand firm for what you believe but you also got to be flexible and i agree if you're writing commercially if you're just writing to please yourself make a six-minute song totally Go for it. yeah fine. yeah and if, yeah. You, if you have like family members that are happy to listen for all six minutes more power to you but, <laughs> yeah uh, i never found uh my extended family other than the first listen 
too too interested, <laughs> frankly, in in making me part of their uh, regular playlist. Uh, they're usually after that first listen. They're usually the least tolerated. <laughs> you should go out and buy another fan. <laughs> I, I, you know, I did produce. It was in the '90s. A uh, we would call it an EP today. Uh, it was a about a six song cassette that I did. Yeah. And I have one niece. She said she played that cassette until it it fell apart. She loved it. And. And you know, God bless her. Nobody else played it that much, but she did, and she could sing every song that was on there with you know really good precision. She has a decent voice, so that was a little bit flattering. And music can be addictive like that if you get into. I have some obscure artists that I love from the '70s and the '80s. Nobody else has ever heard of them. They never made it, but they're some of my favorites. And the great part about music is taste is different. You know, like. You know, I'll play a song for one person, I'm going, yeah, and then I'll play it for the other person. They say that's the best song I've ever heard you write. And I go, really? Do <laughs> you believe that? Yeah, I love that song. So music, it's so great because of that. You can, you know, have totally different tastes than one of your good friends or your family members, and you just play them this song and say, "Isn't this the greatest song?" They go, yeah. And then same thing, they could play you something you know doesn't really do it for me, but they love it. And that's the great part about music is individual taste. Hopefully if you get hit one where you hit or a million people say, I love that, that's a good thing too. So let me ask you about the co-writing process because it, it, it feels like the, the interview is really uh, mostly about uh, co-writing, your experiences with it. Uh, and, and that's great. I mean, I've been totally engaged in this. So the, the question is, is after you've written a song, You've got, you know, you've got your variety of uh, verses and uh, chorus and uh, whatever else you have in there. Do you find that when it comes time to start producing, there's always been this nagging thing that maybe, uh, let's just say verse two isn't as strong as verse one or the chorus. And do you ever find that you go back to the other writers to rewrite it if it's production time? Or do you just say, you know, is there a writer in the group when they're producing that just has is sort of given the authority to just say, make the changes you need to bring it to, to the uh, That's rare. Most of the time people, your co-writers want some input, but I, I find it exactly what you say. And when you go to produce it and you're going to pay money, even <laughs> yeah. some, some things don't <laughs> uh, stand up to paying money to have it no. done. It's like, mm, do I want to demo that with that second verse the way it is? I don't think so. Do I want to pay money to a producer? The other way that it happens for me is when I go out, in, you know, when I went to Nashville, I stopped going in March because of the, the, the pandemic stuff. But um, when I would be there, I'd be there for 10 days and I would play what they call songwriter rounds, which you've probably done. Three or four people sitting in a row playing their song, telling the stories like about designs on you and the tattoo and all that stuff. Um, and it's, an, it's a really incredible experience sometimes. It's magical. And when I would get up to play my song, I would think, you know, that line sucks. <laughs> that line, I'm embarrassed to sing it. It's the wrong line. It just doesn't work. When it got real playing in front of somebody else and playing in front of my fellow songwriters, I would cringe when that line or that second verse would come or that line in the chorus. And I think that when it gets real, 
is when other people are going to hear it or when you're investing some money and time into it. And you almost always go back. Sometimes I'll just go back and go, I just played this song and this line doesn't work. And I'll suggest another line or I'll say, can we jump on Zoom or whatever, Facebook, you know, video and talk about this line? Or we have a Google Doc usually that we're sharing. And I'll say, I went in and put a suggestion for a line in there because I think this line is cheesy or it doesn't work or it doesn't fit with the rest of the song. And so you usually go back to people. I have rewritten on my own and then gone back to my co-writers. And sometimes they've said, no, absolutely not. I love it the way it is. And then you just have to either, you know, argue with them and try and persuade them or move on to the next song and just go, I got to let that one go because I don't believe in it the way it is. They do believe in it. Sometimes I'll go back a year later and I'll go, look, at nothing's happened with the song. You haven't done anything with it. I haven't done anything with it, and I'm not going to do anything with it unless we change it. And sometimes they'll soften up by that because I'm usually pitching. I pitch my songs daily. I have various pitch channels that I can do, and I pitch my songs for other artists to do them or for sync uh, for TV and movies and, and commercials. And so usually they're swayed by that. I'm, well, I'm not going to pitch it, and they're not pitching because they don't have the connections. And so they'll say, okay, well, I'll rewrite it for you. you know, and sometimes they'll give in, but sometimes not. I've had writers that are adamant that that line doesn't change, and I just don't believe in that line, so I won't pitch the song. But that's the good news of writing 300 songs a year. You have a few to choose from. You know, um, I'm thinking of some uh, people that I have followed over my years that that impacted me. There was one uh, uh, Christian rock and roll artist that was sort of there at the beginning. Uh, His name is Larry Norman, and he has since passed away. Uh, But Larry Norman was like the uh, Bob Dylan of the contemporary music, Christian music scene back in the late 60s and early 70s, and then continued. But he did something, and and this would be a lesson to anybody that is caught in that uh, rewrite sort of conundrum, uh, because they just, they feel the song too much. It was not uncommon for him to do different versions of his songs on subsequent albums. So, you know, it's okay to have, I mean, if getting one of the contributors to put money into producing a song requires a a minor change that maybe you're not comfortable with, but they are, and they're willing to put their money to it. I mean, you still own part of the song, right? And absolutely, and you're free to produce it the way it was originally written. And the odd thing is, is that can spur both songs on to greater heights because people that are fans will listen and go, "Hey, did you hear the 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 original version of that song?" Yeah. And they want to listen yeah. to. It. And it's true, you know, uh, Leonard. It's Col- true. I do that when I'm obsessed with somebody and I'm obsessed with their music. I want all the versions and the different. Oh, did you hear they added? Paul Simon added a new verse to the boxer at the end with the live one in Central Park. I love that. And I learned that new verse. I think that's cool. Well, a popular song now, especially with buskers, and it's, you know, it's it's sort of starting to hit that space like Stairway to Heaven is in music stores where you just don't want to hear it anymore, uh, is, of course, Hallelujah. But there are yeah. there are dozens of variations of that song. What caused the song to be popular in more contemporary times was uh, when the song was used uh, as the intro song. I think it was, uh, was it Katie Lang sang it 
at the beginning of the Olympics in Canada, and she yeah. sang it, and that was one version, and that's, that's the version that typically people sing. So when I was looking to do it, I was hunting down lyrics and stuff for the song, and I found an early recording of that song by Leonard Cohen, and it had mostly different verses. I mean, the first yeah. verse about, you know, uh, the first verse where you go, the, you know, the minor fifth, the major lift. Ah, yeah, that's a great one. That was in every version I've heard. But there were the, a couple of the verses that he sang in this early recorded version I really liked because it had more of a, more of a faith-based feel. Okay. Yeah. Whereas the ones that typically are sung are, there are some verses that frankly are a little sacrilegious. He produced several versions of a song that. I heard he wrote hundreds and hundreds of stanzas of that song and then just had to cut a, call it down to the best ones. And I yeah. think it changed. I think he said 13 years he was writing that song. Yeah. I have a song that I actually produced. I wrote it in uh, probably 1980, and it's it's a case where the first verse and the the chorus were really good, but the second verse, the third verse, the four there were four verses ultimately, they just weren't as good. I really nailed it on the first, and I nailed it actually the fourth verse was really good too. Uh, Those two verses. Uh, were okay in the course. And I left it for years, just left it. It just, I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't get out of the rut. And then it was about um, 15 years ago, I said, you know, I have to sit down and look at this through fresh eyes. And I threw out a couple verses and I wrote some other uh, stuff. And one verse was pretty good, but there was a lyric line that just failed. Like you said earlier, there's something that just doesn't work. And then I swapped some verses around and I produced it. It's a decent song. You can't be so in love with your original right that you refuse oh, yeah. to, uh, you know, send that baby off into the, uh, the world the way it well, should Well, and I be. think you said another, another principle is good. Get some distance from it because when you first write it, you're so attached to that version and it's so ingrained in your brain. And, you know, that was the thing that really helped me go into Nashville is that just, you know, like be ruthless with your song, listen to it like you were listening to it for the first time as a listener. And is it good enough? Does it compete with those ones on the radio? And if not, go back and edit. And again, I learned that with my books. My books could always be better. I, I had editors that made my books better and they made me look at my books with a critical eye, not a getting down on yourself eye, but a critical eye. How could this be a little better and a little clearer? Because like with books, music, songs, you want to communicate to people. If they're not communicating right and the emotion get, doesn't get evoked, then probably the song could use some work. Yeah, exactly. Let's do the last song and then we'll get into a few more things so we get all the songs in that uh, you wanted. Right. So this final song is called All the Words. So tell us about that. I thought this was appropriate for a songwriting and, and you know, um, talking about music show because it uses the analogy of music for love, for loving someone. Okay. And with that, here we go. Mm-hmm. 
Driving to work with the radio on When the DJ plays our song Pull to the side of the road to call And say I miss you when I'm gone If all the music in the world faded away As long as I have you I'll be You're the melody at the heart of me My rhythm and rhyme, my harmony You got me singing along to a love that's right to Oh, you are the song I know all the words to Being with you doesn't get old, baby Wanna keep it on repeat even when I hear you over and over, you're still brand new to me. Every line of every verse and each refrain. Every word is calling out your name. You're the melody at the heart of me. My rhythm and rhyme, my heart. Got me singing along to a love that's right to Oh, you are the song I know all the words to It lifts me up and carries me away Every time I hear your music play You're the Singing along to a love that's right too. Oh, you are the song I know all the words to. Oh, you are the song I know all the words to. Wonderful song again. Thank you. That was uh, my, my one of my co-writers singing it, uh, Greg Wilson, and, and my my co-writer roommate in Nashville, Michelle Canning, who's an amazing bluegrass musician and writer. Uh, we wrote that song together, and he was inspired by a little little um, like I don't know Target plaque that his wife had put in their living room you are the song i know all the words to and we were looking for what are we going to write today and he goes you know i just walked through the living room and i saw this little saying that my wife has on a plaque or a pillow or something you are the song i know all the words to i said we're writing that that is a great quote. yeah it is that's a great uh yeah just it and, and the song really captures uh, of that love it's hard to find a new way to say I love you, isn't it? You know, so many songs have been written by love, and all of a sudden I'm like, I've never heard that way of saying I love you. And, and we relate to it so much because we're musicians. So it's interesting in the songwriting process because, I, like I said, I've been doing it for years. And the thing that I tried to coach people in when they're writing is that 
don't be a cliche machine. Now that happens a lot in Christian music. They just grab cliches and sometimes if it's that kind of song, then grab them, right? But if you're trying to say something meaningful, try and think of a new way to say a tried and true principle or thing that you want to uh, communicate. And it's not always easy because, you know, especially... It's got to be universal and unique, and nobody's ever said it that exact way before, you know? It's what I think Lauren Daigle does so well these days, you know? And she's just like, wow, I knew that phrase, but she just took it and used it in a way that spoke to millions of people. And, yeah, if you come up with unique ways to say certain things, it will inspire people. So another question, have you uh, ever done any busking or any street performing before? Is that part of your uh, experience? Yeah, I've done that in the past. Yeah, I've done that in the past a little, but not so much. Because when I was younger, I came to a cross point. I was a very shy person when I was younger. I'm less, less shy now. I'm also introverted. And when I would go out and play music, I'd be at my least shy. But um, it was still hard for me to play in front of people when I was younger. And I got to a certain point where I was going to be, okay, am I going to go be a singer-songwriter or am I going to be a therapist? And, and I thought, oh, you know, it's kind of selfish to be a singer-songwriter because it's all about me and my self-expression. But if I'm a therapist, I can help people who are suffering. And, you know, I'm, that's sort of my values to help, help people when they're suffering. And years later, I thought that sort of was a wrong-headed way to think about things. But because music has saved my life sometimes. Listening to a song has given me a lifeline to hold on to when I'm in a difficult time. Or it's spoken the words that I couldn't speak, but I knew I felt in my heart or in my soul. And it's articulated those words and made me feel less alone. So, I'm, you know, when I went back to music in my later life and I said, you know, I really want to focus on songwriting. I want to be doing what I was hoping to do as a therapist is, you know, validating people and making people feel less alone and easing the suffering in life and lifting people up with my music and touching them emotionally in some ways. And so I, you know, I did, I did some of that when I was younger, I would sit on, I was in a college campus and I would sit out and play music. I would go out to restaurants and bars, and but sometimes on the streets and in subways and play and, that's a great education because you have to play something that people want to stop and listen to or else you just feel totally ignored and silly. You learn what works. Oh, you do. And uh, I have this, um, uh, this saying about uh, the, the most brilliant marketers on the planet are uh, people that are begging on the side of the road with signs because they only put up what works. Or they don't eat, yeah. right? So there's some lessons yeah. to be learned from being on the street, finding out what resonates with people. And uh, it's yeah. it's true, you know, um, there are people, uh, like the very first interview that we did was with uh, a guy from Dublin City today. His name is Sean. He started the channel. And it's it's just exploded in, in two and a half years to being maybe the premier channel that features buskers and they happen to be in Dublin, Ireland on this street called Grafton street. Ah. And it's a shopping. And it's a shopping area. It's uh, upscale. And these kids sing their songs and they're there figuring out what works and what doesn't work. 
And you can tell the ones where it's working because there's a change in their performance. They've done it just long enough to know, you know, this is this is a money song that'll get donations into the uh, guitar case. And they know that they can't do other songs that they may really like, because I've heard them, they've recorded a lot of them. Uh, it's like instant marketing education, you know. Yeah. You don't get paid, you know it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. If you don't eat that day, it wasn't a great, wasn't it? That was the wrong selection of songs. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it, and it's true. Buskers would do instant marketing with their song choices. Just amazing how they could refine things. And there's a few of these kids that are starting to get fairly well known. There's one breakout uh, busker there. She was on Ellen. Ellen Cherry picked her out of the crowd. Wow. And she got on Ellen. She's getting better in the year or so that I've been following everybody. Uh, she's gotten a lot better. Uh, now that I brought it up, I, I, I kind of feel like I need to at least mention her. She's got almost 4 million followers. That's the point here. Amazing. Well, you know, that's how KT Tunstall um, started. She started as a busker, and I heard her interviewed once, and she's, you know, she's, uh, she's just had a bunch of hit songs and British um and she, uh, she said, being out on the street was the greatest education which songs worked and which didn't. She developed her whole guitar style and singing style because she made it really percussive. She said, I had to be the drums and, you know, the percussion, and I had to be the singer. And I really had to belt it out. And she's got a really belting out style and a very percussive guitar style because she learned that busking. That's what would draw people in and get them to put the money in her case. Yeah, so this gal, her name is Allie Sherlock. Ah. When I started following her, she was hovering at about 2 million followers. And of course, that's amazing to have that, especially. And she was only like 14 when she hit that. Well, now, a year later, I think she's 15. She may be almost 16 now. She's hovering just below 4 million followers. Okay, so there's an example of somebody who went to the street. She has the support of her father there. He's always around, and as you would hope, a parent would be in this case. Yeah, no kidding. And she has grown as a performer. She's worked on her guitar playing, which, you know, even a year ago was, eh, you know, it, it was okay for what she was doing, but she's improved dramatically in that regard. She's Her vocals, she's finally stretching her vocals where she never did a year ago. Mm. She has played in, um, in fact, in in Berlin, I think it was, at the symphony. They had her on uh, to to do some things. There was some, I think the symphony was there, and there was some other thing going on. They invited her to play. And I may have the story a little bit wrong, but there's a video of it. And I've actually listened to the the symphony in Berlin in that same uh, arena, so it's it's really impressive. Wow. So she's done a lot in her short time. And it's all okay. because it's all because of being on the street and busking. There's a f- couple other breakout people from this uh this Grafton Street area that are just waiting to pop. But it has caused me to always ask about busking. And hearing that you've done a little yourself is kind of doing the rounds in Nashville is akin to that these days because I think my songs were okay back when I was doing that, but I think they're way better now, the quality of the songs and the commerciality and the hookiness of the songs. But going out of Nashville changes my view of the songs because 
when I'm playing them, I have a certain feeling like, oh, I'm proud of this song. I think this is a great song, and I just play this more. And also the response of people. And every once in a while, someone will come up to me and say, I can't get that song out of my head. You played it the last time you were here, and I've remembered it ever since. I go, okay, that's a good sign. So I think being in front of people when you do music and playing your music in front of people is priceless. Now, live performance is different from recorded performance because some of my songs work really well live because they're funny or they're more, you know, they're more loud or aggressive. And sometimes on record, you can get more subtleties in there and something works on record that wouldn't work as well live. It doesn't have the humor. Sometimes there's a song I would never record. It's just a fun song to play and a funny song to play, but it wouldn't really work commercially, but people love it live. So yeah, I think there's a little difference, but it's great to get feedback from an audience instantly, which is different from, you know, I wrote books for years. It takes a year and a half to get feedback from your readers. If you ever get feedback, except from sales and with music, you get feedback instantly, especially when you're on the street like that. It's a, it's a great thing to do with music. It is. And I found that when you're performing live, whether it's on the street or you're doing it uh, in a nightclub or a church even, seeing the reaction of people as you sing is like feeding you adrenaline. It's feeding you energy. And you know you've made a connection when there is, when there is a legitimate emotional response to the song. Yeah. And what's, yeah. what's funny is I used to host open mics. And, of course, that's what led to this name, you know, Local Open Mic. Sure. I wanted a place to provide a platform for the times I would record it and get people uh, some um, free publicity from the, their open mic experience. And this is years ago now. And I remember singing this one song that I had sung it a number of times. And really put a lot of emotion into it. I thought, man, I nailed it. This could be an emotional song. I don't, I don't know for sure, but uh, never drew anything more than polite, you know, acknowledgement from the crowd. Then one day I was doing it, and you know, because I was the host, sometimes you have to fill. So this is the song I chose to fill in this gap of of time, and it was like phoning the song in. I'd done it so much. And that was the performance that somebody came up to me afterwards in tears. They said, the way you sang that song was so touched her, touched her, you know. And it's really odd because when I took when I took the intention to be to affect people out of my performance, it actually touched somebody. Uh, it's kind of interesting and it's something that caught me quite off guard. Uh, for that, um, you know, but then there's other songs, of course, you can write that just, you know, they're so emotional. Sometimes people don't want to listen to it anymore. It is hitting on all cylinders, something that is so raw with them. They just go, okay, I know you know how I feel. I'm good with that. And, <laughs> and they don't listen anymore. It's really kind of odd. So, Okay, so we've talked a lot about what's going on with you now and, the, and kind of uh, the uh, co-writing thing and your songs. So what was going on in your life prior to, say, these events in recent time? I was a psychotherapist and I was a couples therapist. I was a marriage and family therapist for a long time. So I got stories out the yin-yang and insight into relationships. And Gary Burr, who was one of my songwriting uh, mentors when I first went to Nashville, 
I mentioned earlier. He said, if you can't figure out what your song is about, it's always a love song because it's a universal thing. You know, relationships, love, heartache, longing, you know, um, one-sided love, you know, um, breakup songs. There's just a lot of songs about that. Again, you have to find a new angle, but I've had so many, uh, you know, so many experiences. You can't use people's actual stories, obviously, from my therapy days, but I really love that I can draw upon my emotional knowledge of the deep, you know, suffering and joys and relationships that people have where things go wrong, where things go right. And um, that was a really nice background to bring into my songwriting career aspirations, as well as writing a bunch of books. I learned to write. I learned to tell a story succinctly, three minutes. It's a lot harder to do than in a whole book, obviously, telling a story in a whole book. But I brought all those things. And then one of the things you asked about co-writing before, I think I learned to read the room really well and read emotions. So I become a lot of sometimes the facilitator in the co-writing room because it is like a therapy session sometimes. People are really vulnerable. They tell the real truth you like they did in a therapy session they do in a co-writing session so I think you know it's interesting that I thought life was preparing me to be a songwriter and I am loving songwriting you know as I mentioned I'm at 256 songs today and I'll write one just after we get off um, this conversation and um, I can't get enough if I don't write pretty much every day I get a little itchy these days and before I'd avoid it. You know, I'm like, oh, writing songs is so hard. Now I find it a joy, partly because it's relational. Co-writing, I, I still write songs on my own, but I much prefer co-writing. It's faster, and it, and the song comes out better 99% of the time. People uh, in the past have observed this about me, and I think it's, it's true for a lot of singer-songwriters, and that is you can tell if a singer-songwriter, an artsy-type person is doing well by the fact they're, they're actually churning out songs. Because it's like a runner. If a runner doesn't get out and jog or run, you know, what's wrong? You want to know what's wrong. Well, if I'm writing songs, the world is pretty good for me. And they can be sad, they can be whatever they're going to be, but usually I'm in a pretty good space when I'm writing songs. And when I'm not... Yep. You know, I'm not going to be despondent. I don't mean to suggest that. It's just I'm at my best, I think, when I'm creating. And that's the process. So, okay. So um, give us some of your contact information so we have it here uh, for the fans. Yeah, again, mostly because I'm a behind-the-scenes person. Um, I don't put myself out there. I put my songs out there. Oh, okay. But I'm at... I'm at billohanlandmusic at gmail.com if somebody wants to email me. I'm, I, I have, I have um, a Spotify playlist that if people want to write me, I, I'll give it to them of songs of mine that have been released. I'm usually not the artist, although I do have one called The Man I Could Be on Spotify if you want to find that. And um, I have billohanlandcom slash music where I put a few of my demos up um, and it's music with a capital M. Um, and, uh, otherwise you can find me on Facebook. I'm on, I, you know, I'm not a digital native, but I'm on Instagram and I'm on, you know, I'm on Twitter and things like that. 
it's not my favorite thing. But Facebook is where I hang out a lot. So if you want to find me, there's Bill O'Hanlon Music on, Bill O'Hanlon Songwriter on Facebook, if you want to join me there. Wonderful. Well, thanks for being with us. I'm thinking I'm having, you know, I'm having, I'm going to have to go to Al and on and on and on and on and on and on after this interview because I talk so much. But thank you for having me and letting me all forth. Yes. And uh, thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy person. You're co-writing. You're doing lots of things and carving out uh, time this morning for us to talk. It's been a pleasure. So we're going to segue out. I'm going to say some things to the uh, fans. And um, thank you for joining us. That concludes part two of our interview with Bill O'Hanlon. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have in interviewing Bill. He's a fascinating person, and we are going to follow up with Bill in the future to see how things are going. Be sure to find him on Spotify in particular. He has his personal playlist, I Found It, You Should Too. Just search for Bill O'Hanlon. For Local Open Mic, I'm your host, Tim Heath. Remember, get on the stage and step up to the mic. The world is listening. Listening.